Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to the Game Podcast from The Times. I'm Hugh Wizencroft. Today we ask you, is the false nine finally here to stay in British football? Chris Wilder's out of a job. What's gone wrong at Sheffield United off the field? How do you discipline the modern day player? Elsewhere, we'll look at Sunderland, who triumphed at Wembley alongside Salford City. And Kalechi Iheanacho earns himself a memorable Mother's Day. Is he turning into everyone's favourite backup striker? Lots to discuss with me today, Alison. And Rudd, Tom Roddy, and Gregor Robertson. How are you doing, guys? Good. Very well, Good, good, good. I know you've all been listening to recent podcasts. I appreciate the love uh, in return. Uh, lots for us to get through today. Let's whiz through it. We'll talk uh, firstly about false nines, the former tactical quirk, which could now be a mainstay in the Premier League and, in fact, across major teams in Europe. I'll defer to Jonathan Wilson on this, the author of Inverting the Pyramid. He says, although it's over 125 five years since it was first employed the success of the center forward conductor in argentina in the 1920s or the uh, false nine the deep lying striker that hungary had in the early 1950s this style of play had never really caught on in a massive way a new super striker had always emerged in every period to stop the false nine in its tracks but over recent seasons Liverpool Manchester City Barcelona Manchester United as well and even the likes this season of Fulham West Ham and Brighton have all employed it so Tom Roddy is the false nine here to stay I think what's interesting about the false nine is that for years it's been used by the more elite clubs and the and the um with with better squads I mean you referred you to Manchester City using it. Pep Guardiola's used it throughout his managerial career. We saw it first with Lionel, not first, as you said, 100 years ago, we saw it first. But um, Lionel Messi would drop deeper and it allowed then the players around him to who were, who were you know, in the same sort of bracket, that quality to 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 cause more problems and he would get on the ball more. So I think it just caused opposition defences problems that they hadn't foreseen. What's interesting about it now, I mean, the thing is the the accessibility to, to watching football these days means that you can educate yourself more. And the thing, it seems to be more of a solution, doesn't it, for teams? Because like when Jamie Vardy was injured for Leicester, you had Iose Perez doing it. I think when um, David Moyes brought in Jesse Lingard, he spoke about the possibility of him playing as a false nine. But it's interesting to see, I mean, Fulham on Saturday decided to do it against Man City and, and leave Josh Madger and Mitrovic on the on the bench. So we're, we're kind of seeing it throughout a division now. It's not just the teams at the top with all the talented players um, using it. And and it, and it works. I think it, it acts as a surprise and, it, it you know, all the analysis that teams do behind the scenes now it just throws all that out of the window all that detail that they give the coaches give to players is is forgotten um because they throw sort of throw a spanner in the works and and it can work and it was with fulham for example it was working for for 45 minutes 
Gregor, England centre-half Harry Johnston, back in 1963, spoke of a sense of utter helplessness as England lost 6-3 to Hungary at Wembley. Uh, Tom's alluded to it there, but what do you think the main difference is for a defence playing up against a false nine? There's two, two things about being a defender that are probably the worst things to deal with. First is any, anything in behind. Defenders notoriously hate turning and running towards their own goal. And the second thing is when a player is in that, that area between the lines and it's like a no man's land for a defender. And we saw actually Sheffield United against Leicester, Ethan Ampadu repeatedly stepping into that area and it leaves a hole. That's the first issue. And the second issue is even when you step into that area, if a player is clever enough and you know positionally aware enough, they're still very hard to kind of to mark and to get close enough and tight enough to. And if you're you know if you're if you're in that area and popping off passes and playing one twos, you again the defender is left in no man's land. So uh, any time, any time. I remember uh, this is a, a massive clanger of a name drop, but I wrote a piece during lockdown about playing against Iniesta when I played for Scotland twenty once, and yeah. <laughs> sorry, <laughs> but it was just the whole day the, the whole evening sorry just felt like constantly making that decision having to make that decision to go in and confront him in that in that in that hole or to sit off and and when you and when he gets if you sit off and he collects the ball and runs at you either way you're you're scuppered so it's kind of you know those it's a it's a unique skill set really not unique but it's kind of a pretty specific skill set that player has to have, I think. First of all, to be kind of to have that spatial awareness and the ability to bring players in around them. But also nowadays, with the kind of with wide forwards, it also creates space for them to run into him behind you. Alison, has, has the modern game meant the false nine is is more appropriate in many ways? Um, firstly, you can't really tackle the way you used to the fitness level has gone up as well technically players are better you know what do you think the difference is uh, i'm with two call i've got a problem with the term false nine actually he calls it an almost nine doesn't it um because <laughs> maybe maybe it's a philosophical problem because if you've got a false nine can you have a 10 is the false nine really a 10 is if you've got a false nine are you really playing a false 10 that's what, is that what we should be calling it? Because I think a false nine is more like a 10 with different sorts of friends. Because the most important player on the pitch is the 10. I think if you want a beautiful game of football, if you play with a false nine, then you don't have a 10. So I would like to repackage the whole thing as, <laughs> as you've decided you get more movement from your intelligent and your fast players if you play a 10 type and ditch the number nine type. But I still think the purest form of football is when you've got an intelligent out and out target man or a number nine who, you know, plays on the shoulder of the last defender and you have a number 10 who's his best mate in football terms. And his job is to unleash him with you know, clever reverse pass, no look pass, or something clever and they play <laughs> off each other that's that is pure football um yeah if this was to become like well probably what will happen everything comes in trends so probably in three years time here you will have a podcast and you'll be saying oh you know you know what's back in fashion a target man do we think this will catch <laughs> on so it's 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 trend but i think i think overall to answer your question i think because um, the game's about intensity at the moment Basically, you survive if you can manage it, the right level of intensity over 90 minutes. I think you get more from your team if you have a false nine. There's just more work done from the front three, probably, is the reason. Just now, Alison raised that, is that about number 10, is that we, we're seeing fewer number 10s in the Premier League because there's more wide forwards. But also, wide forwards could almost act as number 10s because they come in and field so much. So, it's the game, Alice is right, it's, the game's more and more about intensity, but it's also about breaking lines because defeat teams are far better kind of set up and, and well-structured. Uh, so, fight, you know, finding those pockets of space between the lines from what, from whichever position. Uh, and also, a false nine kind of leaves defenders redundant if you're if you're if you have 
defenders who are of no one to mark, then you naturally it follows that you have overloads in other areas of the pitch. Other areas of the pitch. Leeds United are are, are renowned now for the number of defenders they field depends upon how many strikers the opposition play. So if they have if if a team plays with one up front, Leeds play a, black, a back four, so they have two men marking two men against one striker. If the opposition play two up front, they play a back three. So there's always one man spare at the back. So that you know that that's because Bielsa doesn't want a, a defender to be redundant. So you know I, th- I think it's just about creating overloads and as I said, finding space, breaking lines as well. That's that's more and more what modern football is about and how you can how you can find ways through better organised defences. Is it about coaches more than it is about players? There are wonderful players who've been false nines before. Is it about the manager having the nous to, to get the players to, to that level to understand the role? Yeah, I think it is because also Alison really um, hit the nail on the head with the idea of, of the, the false 10 and the false nine because arguably Fulham was a false 10 because Ruben Loftus-Cheek isn't that, isn't naturally a number nine and he was playing more as a as a 10. But you get you get coaches come in with a certain philosophy and a belief like we saw with Guardiola. I mean, Guardiola's belief in the in the false nine can be seen in the amount of players who've played the position. I think Mares, Sterling, uh, De Bruyne, um, uh, Ferran Torres, Foden—they have all played a false nine this season, which is, and it says a lot that on Saturday it was a surprise to see strikers playing for Manchester City. Uh, two strikers playing for Manchester City. Um, and we've seen the same with with Chelsea because Thomas Tuchel came in and he was clearly from the off he was clearly a big fan of the the use of a false nine because he tried it with Christian Pulisic and it didn't really work out and now he wants to try it with Havertz and it might work out it seems like it could do if he starts hitting the target. Um, it's all it's all to do as you said Hugh with with philosophy and and how a manager thinks it work and I, I also think it's to do with the the, the players you've got um, as Alison alluded to I think the this the players around the person who's asked to play that position are really important as to whether you can use it or not I think there's a chance of it working with Kai Havertz, actually, because I think he's very composed in front of goal by comparison with Timo Werner, who's got maybe the physical attributes that he doesn't have. Um, but, but I really liked what you said, Alison, about that, that false 10. In my mind, I'm picturing a sort of diamond in midfield with two strikers, except you put the two strikers on the touchline at either side of the pitch and you slightly push forward that that tip of the diamond as a, as a number 10 creating. Maybe if you choose to play, I'm going to call it a false 10. Maybe if you choose <laughs> to play a false 10, is that, I wonder if as a coach, that's your starting point. Do you think it is? Because everything, the way you play, then revolves around that. So if you say you haven't got a striker type, someone with, you know, you haven't got someone tall, you haven't got somebody who does sort of hustle up front, that will then mean you put in fewer crosses, doesn't it? Unless it's a set piece. And then you that means you, you set up the team differently. It, it sort of has a knock-on effect all the way back to the goalkeeper who isn't going to necessarily do one of those long passes up to a target man. So maybe, I don't know, I'm guessing that maybe when you, as the coach, you sit down and think, how am I going to play today? And it's interesting, there are quite a few coaches who play it differently. It's not like one system now, is it? We don't know for sure before the team's sheets come out what system a lot of teams are going to play. I mean, Chelsea, Chelsea, Chelsea have the classic, classic centre-forward in Olivier Giroud, who you could caricature as he doesn't do very much, he just sort of hangs around looking tall and elegant. But that completely, whether he plays him or not, completely changes I mean, he can do it, Tuchel, because he's got thousands of great players, so he can he can mix and match. But I mean, it's quite demanding as a player that you don't know until you know you've done a bit of setup practice just before the fixture. Today we're going to play in this way because I think it does change the way you, not even who you utilise. It's like your attitude in the game is different as well. I think you can 
absorb a lot of pressure if you've got a target man that you know at one point is going to do turn and do something wonderful for you. If we come back to your opening salvo, you is the is the false nine here to stay. I was still saying no, because the majority of these th- these teams we've spoken about it still feels like a temporary solution to a, a specific problem. Liverpool aside, because they have worked, they have found a, a kind of part, a, you know, a three-man partnership with Firmino dropping in that has worked so well. And although you know there are question marks starting to be raised about that too, and Barcelona because they had Lionel Messi, but the majority of the time, it feels like a, either a solution to 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 playing against a specific opponent or a team doesn't have. The striker that they want, or you know, they have injuries or things like that. So uh, you know, it's not. It's very rare for a team for this to be the team uh, the way a team plays all the time. It's funny now as well because we've spoken on this podcast about Edison Cavani and and watching him in recent weeks, and with all the false nines playing and the different systems that come in suddenly, watching Cavani, you appreciate that kind of target man and the movement of a of a natural traditional number nine even more. Yeah, no, I tend to agree with you. Uh, Maybe the popularity of the false nine for many, many teams uh, will continue. A lot of teams do have their main goal scorers playing from wide positions now, as as Gregor mentioned, Liverpool too. Manchester City players have benefited for that in wide areas. Um, The same is true of Arsenal at the moment. Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, regularly their top scorer, consistently from wide. Of course, the argument was made that he should play through the middle, and I think uh, Mikel Arteta decided that that wasn't to be. I mean, this weekend he decided not to play him at all. Uh, an unused substitute in the North London Derby win over Spurs. Reportedly, he was in the starting eleven, but was dropped after arriving late. Apparently not the first time this season. His manager, Mikel Arteta, believes it's an imperative that the Arsenal captain leads by example. So we wondered, how, how can you discipline the modern player? At times they've got more money than sense, let's be honest. And the best ones usually outlast the manager. Alison, what do you think? This, well, I think this is um, instructive because Arteta is very young. It's his first job in charge. If you recall, he's had a bit of a problem with rumours that he's too matey. He's too close to the players. Some of them call him, you know, Mick as opposed to Gaffer. <laughs> Mick. And, and, um, <laughs> it can't be Mick, surely not. <laughs> you call him Mick, how are you going to call him Mick? Okay. As you well know. And, um, and one of the ones that do call him Mick is um, Aubameyang, who, you know, he probably, I'm, I'm guessing here, but it may be you've given him the captaincy and you think, hang on a minute, if he thinks he's going to be able to get away with it, just turning up late because we're mates. I have to show that, you know, there's a line here. It's a line to be drawn here. I'm your boss. It's a little bit like jumping up and down and saying, look at me, I'm very important. There's an element of that to publicly making a key player sit sit out the match. And um, I've just I just found it incredibly funny the way the camera kept panning to... Aubameyang surrounded by seats that were covered with notices that said, please do not sit here, as if, as if it was like just for him. No one's allowed to talk to him yet. He's been very, very naughty. So um, I think that is a, a specific, a very specific instance of a young manager just trying to show his squad and the world that he is in charge. Because let's face it, footballers have been guilty of far worse than being late, turning up late. I mean, there have been players breaking COVID regulations and they don't, they don't get dropped for it. I mean, there's no, <laughs> so um, uh, it's, I, I think this is, this is a manager learning how to discipline. And the fact we're joking about it, well, I'm joking about it, is because there were no repercussions because Arsenal Arsenal won the game and he's come out of it looking like he did the right thing. Could so easily have looked like a stupid thing to do, though, couldn't it? Tom, what do you think? Did Mick do the right thing if Arsenal had <laughs> lost? How do you think this would have been seen? Yeah, it would have. It, it would have. There would have been a bigger question mark over it, um, wouldn't there? I think it would have cost him about twenty thousand pounds if Frank Lampard was his manager. 
wouldn't it? Um, going back to those fines that, that came in. Um, I think I think it sort of taps into a little bit of uh, an ongoing issue at Arsenal that predates Mikel Arteta and it's one of the things he's been trying to deal with in that Arsenal have a little bit of a leadership problem and have done for quite a few years. Um, the, the, the people who are meant to be their leaders have, have, have let them down over time. I mean, Granite Xhaka is one of them. He's one of their leaders and, and you see him in, in games and you see him off the pitch and you hear about him off the pitch and, and he is... He is one of the, the the guys who is the more senior members, but and and then he gets sent off in a game, and you see him um, swearing at the fans, you know, a couple of years ago now, isn't it? And and making the errors that he he makes. Um, and I think it's interesting with our, uh, with Aubameyang that Arsenal, when they went through that terrible period in December. Aubameyang was one of the players who was present in on the pitch, but he wasn't one of the players who really got them out of it. That was a combination of uh, Bukayo Saka, Emil Smith Rowe, and Kieran Tierney. They were the they were the leaders in that kind of resurgence and revival. And I don't. This is this definitely isn't isn't the end of Aubameyang. Far from it. But I just think there, he's his importance at Arsenal isn't as big as it once was. I think that's the important part. Huge contract he's been given for someone who, who maybe isn't going to play such a big part. If they had fined him twenty thousand pounds, they might have got a little bit more of their money's worth. To be frank, but. Gregor, just take us back to your time playing. Do you think this was the the right thing compared to how fines and discipline at a club worked in your time? I think Arteta kind of came in and discipline was a big, a big kind of aspect, a big focus of his of his arrival and his sort of demeanour and his you know, what he wanted to what he what he wanted to do at Arsenal. And so he'll have rules written down, and everyone will know they'll be set in stone. And so, if even if the biggest player at the club is to break them, uh, you still know what the what the repercussions going to be. I would suggest, I would suggest they will have a fine that that says a fine, a, a, a sanction that says if you are late for on a match day, you you don't you don't play. So uh, as long as these things are, are are known and and it's not like an off the cuff decision. Then that then there's no there's no comeback there's no issue I can't see there being any issue about this so um, discipline's important it's it, it's and it's very difficult to to discipline as you've sort of alluded to to discipline modern footballers because how much money they earn money is irrelevant um, I always liked the, the the idea that Nuno had has at Wolves where he kind of he's, I think he gave, I think it was Johnny he told in an interview that if a player's late for training. Everyone just waits. They all stand around outside and they wait for him to turn up. And if you're the player who's coming and everybody's hanging around, you know, maybe in the cold, waiting around, thinking, you know, and there's no like laughing and joking about it, and they turn up late. That's I think that probably would make you feel pretty bad. So, you know, I think it it's kind of the the ideal way of of sanctioning players is is finding a way for the players to kind of to self police it. Essentially, um, I did read some funny, you know, reading the papers and stuff this morning. Some funny suggestions that, um, <laughs> that Aubameyang was driving through North London, and there's some kind of new areas being that are being like pedestrianised or stuff. You know, they're planting these big kind of flower pots to make new cycle areas, <laughs> and he's so he's been funneled down all these roads with like extra traffic, and you can imagine him coming in going, "Hey, Mick." <laughs> they've, they've made a new one-way system. I didn't know about that. <laughs> so yeah, I've seen it. Look, yeah, there are there often are reasons. You know, Craig, if I was I was late because of crashes on the motorway and stuff as a player, it, things happen. It's just like you know, there are always circumstances and reasons for it. And it's but as I say, if it's there and it's written down, then you know what the punishment is. No, is it interesting, Gregor? You say you know, the, it's some clubs. It's you know, the players police themselves, which I think probably is, has to be the only way. The start of Scott Parker's reign at Fulham, the, the I mean, things were a bad and very low ebb there. And there, quite a lot of, not just one or two, a lot of players were turning up 
late for training. You know, morale had dipped and it, it was the players who decided, actually, we have to, what, what, what are we doing? We have to stop this now. And it was, it was, it came from the players that we, they would tease the ones who were late and make, make them feel they were letting everyone down. It has to, it has to come from the group, doesn't it? Because it's such, I mean, football is all about the team and, you know, the fact that you have, uh, Fulham again is a very good example because week after week now you've got players who are starting in the starting 11 at the start of the season who they know they're never going to get on the pitch again, but they have to turn up and do all those, go through the routine as if they might play or might be needed and not, not act sulky. That, that wouldn't have happened, you know, three years ago at Fulham, but now they've, they've, it's come from them that we need to we need to grow up a bit and we're we're gonna spiral out of control if we don't if you know if we don't police ourselves. And that that has to work better than a manager. Because the managers come and go far more than the players do on on average. You know, if something goes wrong, the manager's the one that'll probably get the boot. So as the players, you need to decide what sort of working environment do we want. And it it must be quite fractured if you've got a certain clique of players who do turn up on time and give it everything and then you've got another clique who think they can just shave 10-15 minutes off arriving at training and so on so I can in those instances it has to be it has to be a group of players deciding we are all in this let's just behave better I think there was some decent behaviour on the pitch at the weekend in the North London derby. Could have got a little bit spicier, even though Eric Lamella did see red in the match. We, we'll, we won't talk about his brilliant Rabona. Gregor, defender by trade, the moment I wanted to ask you about, because I think Arsenal did deserve to win the match, was that penalty decision. Davinson Sanchez, for me, went to block a shot. And it was a complete miskick by Alexander Lacazette. Both players, of course, went through with their motions and collided. Wasn't this just six of one, half a dozen of the other? I don't think it was a penalty. I think, as you say, Davison Sanchez's his kind of his direction of travel was not even really towards Lacazette. It was on front of Lacazette to block the ball, and Lacazette missed the ball, and kind of they both came together. Um, so no, I I I don't think it was a penalty. I don't think, I, you know, people saying it it doesn't matter that the the kind of action that preceded the 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 coming together, but it, it, it has to, doesn't it? He missed the ball completely, and and that, I think that affected the way that they came together. So uh, yeah, for me, it's not a penalty. But these these are again, <laughs> we're just seeing how like how how many marginal decisions there are now. You know, you, you can you can see a case for it. Because if if that was if that happened, somebody else in the pitch would would jumping in like that, you know, leaping off the ground to block a pass. Even do it though. Even do it anywhere else in the pitch. You know, you could say he's slightly out of control and whatnot, but there was no recklessness. There was no the player wasn't endangered. So it's very very kind of marginal. But I personally don't think it should have been a penalty. That's it, Hugh. Ask the defender whether it was a penalty or not. <laughs> well, then, if you're the if, if you're the attacker by trade, I don't know how many goals well, you scored, but you tell us. <laughs> Go on, Tom. Was it a penalty? Did I think it was a penalty? No, I didn't. I'm teasing. I'm teasing you, Gregor. Although I think that the direction of of travel doesn't matter, um, and, and I'm, I think it should do, but it doesn't matter. I mean, the irony I thought was that. I found there was clearly um, a directive from Tottenham's coaching staff about the handball law because you noticed every single time Arsenal got wide, Tottenham's players didn't have arms. They were thrown behind their backs because they were so nervous about it. Um, but yeah, I completely agree. I mean, the, if, if, if Lacazette manages to get the shot off, um, then Sanchez blocks it and we're all praising him and or, or not even talking about this um and uh i'd be interested in the screamometer on uh on <laughs> the, that time as well. yeah. Oh, uh there, yeah there probably was a bit of screaming i haven't heard it yet but i'm sure lacazette um, made the referee know there was contact in that situation um it, but it was still a positive weekend for the arsenal manager Mikel arteta still building his reputation both as a, a coach and an authoritarian it seems but it, it all finally came crashing down elsewhere for chris wilder specifically at sheffield united the manager who took them from league one to the premier league has parted 
ways by mutual consent with the club. Paul Heggenbottom will take charge for the rest of the campaign, which began with a 5-0 defeat to Leicester City. It could have been 9 or 10, frankly, watching the game. Uh, the Blades' heaviest defeat for 21 years. Gregor, he's your old manager. You've defended him as much as you possibly can. I don't think there was... I don't think there was a lot wrong with his coaching this season. You know, we mentioned before on the podcast how many narrow defeats they'd had, but this departure wasn't just about results. No, clearly not. I mean, it sounds like there were periods earlier in the season where he, where he, he considered leaving. Um, and the whole kind of wrangling that's been going on behind the scenes for, for quite some time now between the owner of Prince Abdullah and, and the previous owner, Kevin McCabe, I think... You know, that that backdrop has not been helpful, and it's just it's just very sad, isn't it? I think <laughs> Sheffield United fans, even if they, even if you know if you're if you're a Sheffield United fan now, and you look at the journey that they've just been on, and last season how remarkable they perf- you know how remarkably they, they performed, and you know finished where they finished in the Premier League, and now within the space of you know, when when last season finished in the space of what eight months or something, you genuinely fear for what the kind of the next couple of years looks like for Sheffield United. I mean, when these players were so invested, they've all been on this journey with with Chris Wilder. They were so invested in in his vision of the club and the team, um, and who knows what the future holds now? That you know, he was such a kind of totemic figure. The system, everything was built around them. You know, Sheffield United don't have any wingers. If, if the next manager comes in and says we're we're not playing the system, which very likely he, he will, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of players that are going to be kind of redundant probably. And I'd be, I'd say there'd be quite, quite a lot of them think this may be time to look for another challenge too. So, so suddenly, from having this huge connection to your manager and the journey they've been on, everything's going looks like there's a possibility everything could be torn up. And really, for what? Uh, I, having said all that, I think Chris Wilder wanted to leave. Like he wanted to leave early in the season. He was kind of talked around. I think he wanted to leave now because, I th- and and we, we won't really know why. But I think it sounds like he doesn't. He doesn't quite like. He doesn't like what he sees in the in the future, in the coming months and and years, working under this new ownership regime. Um, you know, there's been talk about whether there'll be a director of football or not. Uh, you know, is that something that really should be insurmountable? I just think that he doesn't like he doesn't like the prospect of working for this new owner. As simple as that. So, I think he's thought to himself, even if I stay now and we go down, you know, I've looked, I've, I've looked, he's looked for all these kind of reassurances about keeping the majority of the team. Yes, they might have to sell one or two players and get a couple of loan players in, and they'll be ready to go again. He's, Sounds like he's not not received those assurances, and so he's thinking, you know, if I go down and we're a kind of middle and championship team again, then everything I've done it gets forgotten quite quickly. So his stock's still high just now. I think you know, I, I would don't think it's beyond the the realms of possibility that, he, that a Premier League club wants Chris Wilder. I went up to to see him when he'd won promotion to to find out how he was preparing for the Premier League, and that was against the backdrop of the ownership high court wrangling and so on. And he said he didn't it didn't bother well, he's clearly not going to tell me if it was bothering him, but he said it wasn't bothering him because it's all he said it's all about my relationship with the chief executive, Stephen Bettis. As long as I've got the excellent relationship I have with him, it doesn't matter what's going on at a level above. We we can function properly as a as a club. And they were supposed to have a good relationship. That's I think that's where it's gone wrong for him because Weirdly, when Bettis put out a statement, the f- <laughs> I think it's instructive. Anyway, the first thing in the statement is Bettis saying, "I came, I came here six months before Chris Wilder." What? Like, okay, so you're the man in charge, and Chris Wilder. Let's just rem- remember what the hierarchy is here. And then he went on to say, "We're going to um, enjoy." Um, bringing through players from the youth ranks. So it seems to me like they've had a divergence of opinion on what you should do in terms of recruitment. Clearly, Sheffield United want to start to produce 
youngsters through the academy system. And Chris Wilder's raison d'etre was to find players who were rejects from elsewhere who needed to prove themselves. And he was an excellent, absolutely excellent manager at making players who felt hard done by come together. So there's been a, there's been a fracture at what the philosophy of the club is. And, you know, it, I don't blame Wilder at all if he's wanted to leave because it was a magic formula. But those two things are incompatible. Chris Wilder wants to have an academy that's bringing through young players. I think one of the things is there's so there's been the, the brakes pulled on the building of a, a new academy building. There's been the brakes pulled on the building of a new a building uh, training kind of facility for for the first team as well. If you've ever been to Sheffield United's training ground, they, the first team get changed in like a 1960s working man's club that's been converted. It's quite nice. I quite liked it. Uh, yeah, well, if you're a Premier League club, it's not really uh, appropriate, to be honest now. Quite no, quite good. So, so, they, so, so they were moved down during COVID. They were moved down into the academy building, which is far nicer. So the academy were, were in better digs than the first team until uh, COVID came along. Um, and they're, they're supposed to be building an academy separately for, you know, but the... None of this is happening. It's all been because since COVID's arrived, which is a perfectly reasonable uh, kind of excuse. The, the handbrake has been pulled on all of these things. So I think Chris Wilder has question marks about the level of investment and and like kind of whether whether they're really committed to. He wants to see the academy. He wants to see a kind of the structure of the club, the structures improve, and the Sheffield United being a club that they have in the past brought through lots of young players. He wants to see that happen. But I think, as you say, for so long he's had um, a head of recruitment, Paul Mitchell, who I know from my time at Chesterfield, he's someone who knows the lower leagues like the back of his hands. And that is is what has got to Sheffield United to this point. Whether Whether it could keep them there is the thing that has been proved as something that, you know, there's a big question mark about. So I think there's something about taking the next step in the club saying, look, we need to broaden the horizons. We need to have more input from elsewhere. It's not just you and Paul Mitchell, your your friend who you've known for 20 years. We need to make this something bigger. And I think he probably didn't want to lose a bit of that control. Tom, Sheffield United now, are they left with a lack of direction um, for next season in particular? Paul Heggingbottom in charge until the end of this campaign. But do you think they should try and bring in the new manager sooner than that? You know, more time to to maybe work with some of these players and see exactly how recruitment will go in the summer? No, no, I think they should wait until, I mean, the, the, their fate has been sealed for quite a long time. So I think you you take your time and wait until the summer and, and really, really think about it, really source, source what direction you're going to head in, what direction you want to head in. And and this is a situation that's been building for, for quite a while, as Gregor alluded to. I think go back to Christmas and Chris Wilder was thinking about thinking about leaving. And and that's you know, it's the the first thing to say is that it is a it is a sad situation because the majority of people are admirers of Chris Wilder because he is that straight talker and that kind of hometown hero for Sheffield United. Um, the, I think that as well as the, the the facilities that they had, what Gregor alluded to at the end there, recruitment was really a key issue. And... I think the thing is you get players like Rion Brewster and the amount of money they spent on him that didn't work out and or hasn't worked out so far and Oliver Burke, the, the players he's brought in just just get kind of stuck on him and, and he's now seen as someone who who's spending of money isn't isn't done quite as as wisely as it should be and and that tends to be a bit of it that is a little bit of a trend that we're seeing in football these days as well that that managers are losing control as they would traditionally I mean you you only need to look back to uh, Tottenham and Jose Mourinho talking about uh, Bergwijn coming in and and him he wasn't his pick he wasn't the player he wanted and and for a manager like Jose Mourinho not to be picking the the players that are coming in tells you that football is heading in a different direction and I think that 
you need a unit now. I think it makes sense for it not to be just one person in charge of recruitment, but you need a unit that works in the right direction and works well together. One thing I would say is, you know, that recruitment is a thing that people are throwing at Chris Wilder. And personally, I would have said that the signing of, of uh, Ramsdale and Brewster were good signings. I think, for in the in the market that Sheffield United are able to to shop in, I would have said they were good signs. They haven't worked. That happens. And the other thing is, people are throwing that he's spent 150 million pound net since he since he arrived in the job, which is more than Liverpool and Leicester. But you've got to look at where they started from. He, when he arrived, they were in League One. He's made a lot of these players into players you could see some of them staying in the Premier League. So they had, they started from a pretty low base, and they still have. A, a wage ceiling, which well, an average wage, sorry, which is half the Premier League median wage of sixty thousand a week. That's very few players are more on more than like thirty thousand pound a week at Sheffield United. So, even you know, putting aside last season, Sheffield United last season was a miracle, really. Sheffield United should really be one of the half a dozen clubs who are in this in this position in this kind of battle for Premier League survival season in season out. And the, the issue as well, Gregor, is that the players like the players who that he has brought in that maybe didn't work out, they get stuck to him, but they may not necessarily, well, they weren't necessarily the, the players that he wanted in the first place. I think it was, a, it's kind of scrambling a little bit. I know he, he tried to bring in Jesse Lingard in, in January. It didn't work out. If it, Ollie if Watkins, they can't yeah. afford them. They can't afford no. them. So they're, 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 they've got their hands tied behind the back, really. Alison, final word on this. Would you appoint a new manager sooner rather than later? Well, you have to wonder who'd want to take it now. <laughs> exactly. But, um, I think there's an absolute massive overhaul because there's something so distinctive about the way Wilder has established the team. So you either... Well, you, I don't see how you can come in and copy it because, you know, the ownership don't want that. So do you go in and pretend it's all rosy and you've got a great academy with players coming through and you can be self-sufficient? Mm, no, you're not going to pretend to do that. I, you know, if you've got if you if you're in the market for a job, I think you have to watch and wait and see what your power play could be. I, if I if I needed a job, I wouldn't go in now. So I don't see why anyone else would because I would actually quite like to be a manager. So I think that would make for a really good article, wouldn't it? sensational absolutely the use of a false 10 as well would be a a first for Premier League football so certainly you've got some new ideas Um, look I'm sure they'll do something very very soon at Sheffield United because I think that overhaul process needs to start as soon as possible but yet that's the big news I think over the weekend at least it was from last week but confirmed this weekend Chris Wilder leaving Sheffield United Uh, up next we're on our way to Wembley but don't forget you can leave us a five star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast from you can also subscribe to the times and the sunday times right now on all of your devices you can get yourself one month free at the moment as well visit the times.co.uk slash the game to get involved right now hey it's danny pellegrino from everything iconic ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget check out quince they've got all the good stuff shirts and polos activewear and fine leather goods all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. 
The EFL Trophy broke all kinds of records this weekend. Salford City beat Portsmouth to lift the delayed 2020 final before a revitalised Sunderland beat Tranmere to lift the 2021 incarnation. They won at Wembley for the first time since 1973. Gregor, the Black Cat Sunderland have a new lease of life for many reasons. Yes, absolutely. I think this is a kind of much maligned competition and, and you know, some people taking the mickey this weekend saying it's kind of uh, Papa John's two for one special at Wembley and um, and I don't think there is any <laughs> there is probably a, a better example of the way that football has kind of just ploughed on through this last 12 months in that you can uh, you can play two finals in one weekend and one from a season before but for Sunderland absolutely because because of the hoodoo because of the the seven visits since since 1973 um and seven defeats and what happened last season as well which which was they played Portsmouth in the same final 85,000 fans there huge spectacle you know Sunderland came down and basically colonized Trafalgar Square for a weekend the fans um and they lost that game and it really had a terrible effect on them for the rest of the season they fell out of the automatic places the um then they lost in the the playoff final against Charlton Athletic. So there was that kind of if they if they were to lose this again, you know that kind of question mark about a the hoodoo and Sunderland being this kind of team that seemed to be very cruelly addicted to failure, um, and also what it would do for the rest of the season. But Lee Johnson, since he arrived and the new owner uh, Carol Louis, Louis Dreyfus, twenty three year old heir to um, his billionaire father's empire. Um, undoubtedly re-energised the place. Lee Johnson, hugely positive character um, and and a, and a very smart, forward-thinking coach as well. He's undoubtedly given Sunderland a, a new lease of life and he said that this this is kind of, you could feel the power of the club, even though there's no fans played against a, an empty, a backdrop of an empty stadium. This this could be a kind of a catalyst for Sunderland to go on and finish because when he arrived, they were outside the playoffs and now they're they're kind of just shy of the the automatic places and and I would not be surprised to see them go up automatically and see Sunderland back in the championship, which for a club of their size, I think everyone except Newcastle fans would be happy to see. Yeah, it's just about the minimum expectation that the new series of Sunderland till I die could have a, a positive <laughs> finish as well for the first time. Um, Alison, with the, the new owner, the new boss, the fact they're on one defeat in 15 in all competitions for Sunderland, they, they could make a late chance to come back uh, into the championship. You know, we, we're talking a little bit about Sheffield United earlier on. Are we seeing now a, a, a re-emergence as a Premier League club possibly in the coming years? I think they're eight points off top place. That's that's doable, isn't it? It's climbable. Um, and they're in a clutch of Second's teams. good enough, yeah. They're in a clutch of teams that are, you know, that are, that are on 62, 61, 60. Yeah, it's doable, really doable. It's funny, isn't it? I don't think it, it might have something to do with the uh, Sunderland Till I Die franchise, but they've become, Sunderland have become a team that people are interested in. It's strange, isn't it? I think people, most people feel warmly towards them. And uh, I don't think you can get promoted on a wave of um, you know, national, <laughs> national goodwill. But if you can, I think they'll do it because the, there, is, there is a sense that they have, you know, they have the history and it's been sort of commie, tragic, the sort of fall from grace, you know. And, you know, you can't have a stadium called the Stadium of Light and be in League One. You can't. You've got to, <laughs> you've got to be at least in the championship. So, um, if you know, I think, I think it might be their time. There's a, I agree with Gregor. I think, you know, it's a silly named trophy, but... If you if you can make it, you know sometimes if you're at the top level, going to um, a cup final can be a distraction from what matters. You know, put, you know you, you're trying to do too much at once. But in this instance, I think it's different. I think it does create momentum. I think it it proves that they you know the changes they've tried to make have been in the right direction and it should give them the confidence to think yeah 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 you know we can do it we can do it we can stop being slightly patronized as i'm doing slightly patronized club and become the real club we are 
So I think right now it looks good, I think, definitely. And Sunderland fans raised £160,000 for uh, local charities through the, the sale of virtual tickets, which kind of, you know, I think is a, a sign of the, 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 the love for that club still in the region. And it's kind of, yeah, I, th- I think that sounds right. I think there is something from that documentary you see the kind of human side of of the the kind of suffering that they've all gone through and also the kind of the daftness in the in the boardroom as well and the and the kind of people who have been involved in running that football club for for just for the last few years and before that the kind of you know the distant apathy of Ella Short the the their US owner uh, despite ploughing in hundreds of millions of pounds, uh, doing so very badly. So, you know, there's just, although still we know very little about this 23-year-old who is, <laughs> who's got a lot of money to 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 buy a football club and, and try and get it back to the Premier League, uh, it's a very good start for them. And I don't think anyone will, uh, will begrudge on that. Should probably just touch on Salford City too, in that has there ever been a team who's held a trophy for uh, less than 24 hours? <laughs> I, I'm not sure. I was hoping someone might be able to give me the answer to well, it. Because a, it apparently it, they drank, the, you know, they were drinking the champagne and stuff and then they, they had to give it straight back to be sanitised and uh, cleaned up and, and given to the winners the next day. They got a replica yeah. to take home on the team coach. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it, it is. And it will be, I think, go down in history as one of those quiz questions, uh, won't it, given that, COVID-19 and what has happened in the last year has thrown up so many unusual situations but yes Salford City and and another team that I think has had a lot of investment has taken them to to Wembley too Uh, we saw Gary Neville up in in Wembley with um, some nerve-wracking moments but they won it on a penalty shootout in the end as well so a little bit of drama uh, to boot Um, just finally before we go uh, Tom Roddy I wanted to talk about the Leicester striker Kelechi Iheanacho he's now scored in three straight Premier League games he got his first Premier League hat-trick at the weekend against Sheffield United. It came on Mother's Day and afterwards a lovely interview. He dedicated the hat-trick to all the mothers in the world. Uh, He, of course, lost his mother in his early teens. Um, Is he becoming everyone's favourite Backup striker. I, I know Olivier Giroud got an early mention. I think eleven minutes in. That's that's pretty much a new record, given it wasn't a, a topic about a club that he was playing for on the game podcast. Um, but it, but is he overtaking Giroud now? Do you think, Tom? No, God no. He's got <laughs> definitely <laughs> definitely have to keep doing this for ten years <laughs> to overtake Giroud. I think that uh, Hugh, that interview that you referred to was was really interesting because it, there was obviously a big element of emotion in it, but there was because of the whole Mother's Day thing and, and the background he's got. But um, there was also uh, what I took from it was was the other part of the interview where he said, he said, I've been waiting for this day for so long. And with Ian Acho, there was, there was an element of relief in what he said, because whenever we do see him, he is so popular because he is such a talented player and his his kind of journey so far is a little it's a little bit of a sad one in that you you wonder whether he regretted the move to Leicester which was four four years ago now I think 2017 because of course he was at Manchester City and he dropped uh, he at the time it probably felt like a place to go to to get opportunities and they haven't come um to me it reminds me a little bit of the 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 Harry Kane curse because no backup striker wanted to sign for Tottenham because you're not going to get in the team you're going to sit sit in the bench and play in the Carabao Cup and get opportunities like that like Carlos Vinicius has and that's been what's happened with Ian Acho at, at, at Leicester because you're not going to displace Jamie Vardy and they're not a team who have played for years they're not a team who have played with with two strikers so you're going to sit on the bench and it's it's a shame because he's a player who sh- who has the talent to be playing week in week out and actually going back to the very start of the podcast I think he would he would work as that a traditional number 10 off a traditional striker <laughs> Alison is he is he overtaking Giroud in your heart <laughs> <laughs> that'd be ridiculous <laughs> I, there, there's actually no comparison you. I'm surprised you've tried to make it um, oh, but I'm pleased for Ian Acho that He's got headlines and he's got his hat trick. 
Although, come on, wouldn't any of us on this podcast have got at least two goals against Sheffield United, completely adrift, lost their manager. When, when, I, when, I, when I did go up to interview Chris Wilder about what life in the Premier League would be like, he did speculate. He actually said, the key, the key thing is what we do if we lose 5-0 how we come back from that. He was expecting that to be a possibility. And the fact that they didn't come close to losing 5-0, having been promoted, is evidence to what a great manager he is. He leaves, oh, what happens? They actually do do the worst case scenario and lose 5-0 because he's not there. And so I don't think we can immediately say that Iheanacho is, um, he's finally arrived. He hasn't because he was up against weak, demoralised opposition. Um, and the Leicester fans, you know, they haven't always been very keen on him. I think he's one of the few players that's actually had, um, you know, booing and um, negative sort of postings and so, and so on. He's been, been seen as a bit of a disappointment. Um, but it, if, if, if playing against a demoralised Sheffield United means he's actually found, found his mojo brilliant i'm happy for him and he's he clearly is a really great guy and he's great in training otherwise he wouldn't have just kept being in and around the you know in and around starting games and coming off the bench and so on so yeah but he's not he's not in the same bracket as olivier giroux in terms of class <laughs> and well you know ability in your yet again we'll see that mm-hmm. well, well listen i just think maybe personalities wise he, he's coming into his own i can tell i can tell everyone i'm angry Alison, right now so i'm going to move to gregor um gregor I, I think his game has slightly developed under brendan rogers in that he's sort of more involved in the play i think he he was almost brought in as in the mold as quick center forward you know let's just see if he can replace jamie vardy when he's out and play exactly the same way and i think brendan rogers has, has really changed that um he's sort of in between an iosi perez and a jamie vardy currently at the moment but he's he's look jamie vardy has scored one goal in 14 games and if Leicester were let down by their lack of a squad last year in terms of that push for a Champions League place, then maybe Ian Acho could be the difference in, in getting them to the top four this season. Especially with Vardy, as I say, not scoring right now. Absolutely. I mean, the number of injuries they had, as soon as that happened, everyone thought, feared the worst for Leicester again. And, and Ian Acho's been a big, big, big aspect of their kind of ability to keep grinding out results. And, you know, his goal against Burnley, he's, a, he's an excellent finisher, really is. I, I, and, and as to, you know, as Tom was saying, it's a, it's a tough it's a tough gig supporting someone like Vardy. I mean, I, I did a uh, Rogers press conference last week, and and he said, you know, he's he's Vardy's unique player, he's unique unique story, and and he's a unique proposition, and it's you know he's been a a great professional in being someone willing to kind of support support him, and I suppose you know there. There's also a broader conversation about the kind of need for a succession plan for Vardy. And I'm sure Leicester are going to sign another striker. That has to be one of their priorities this summer. They have to sign a striker, particularly if they do make the Champions League, because Vardy can't go on. You know, he's, he was, he was blistering for him in the first half of the season, but he can't play that this kind of every single week, I don't think, for the next couple of years. You're going to have to start tailoring his game time. So, you know, if Ian Acho is, a, is, a, is willing to be still an option who's going to play maybe 20 start 20 games a season um and if he's if he can prove that he's good enough to do that then you know Leicester it, it could be another player who like who has kind of emerged after a difficult start to his time at a bit like Mendy you know Mendy had a, a disastrous opening few years of his Leicester career and and uh, this season he, he's he's coming to his own so yeah I I, I think he's I think he's uh He's someone who can can link the play very well, and obviously a, a completely different option to to Jamie Vardy, but someone who's a, an excellent finisher and and has shown great professionalism to kind of hang in there. But he was playing with Vardy, and Vardy Vardy was playing incredibly well, and that's why Ian Acho was able to shine. You, it, this isn't evidence that he can he can replace Vardy. He could shine with Harvey Barnes and Madison and stuff alongside him. I, I still think that it's not just because Vardy's there. Yes, Vardy played on two of his goals brilliantly but Leicester have a lot of attacking talent and a lot of them are injured right now so they've, they're they finding a way with those two players playing together up front 
of still being dangerous and, and I threw it up front. Well, that was our way of, of ending the podcast with a nice, lovely chat about Kelechi Iheanacho. <laughs> um, didn't really go that way. He did dedicate his hat-trick to, to all the mothers in the world, but I think he might be scratching one name off that list. Uh, ask <laughs> my thanks. Uh, well done, Kelechi, if you're listening, by the way. Uh, listen, that is all we have time for. My thanks to Gregor Robertson, Thomas Roddy, and I will thank Alison Rudd uh, for being with us for the past hour or so. Remember, give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast from. You can subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times right now. Just go online, search thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game and you can download it on all of your devices. We will see you on Thursday. Past Imperfect with Rachel Sylvester and Alice Thompson on Times Radio. A weekly series of in-depth interviews with high-profile figures examining how overcoming the challenges of their early lives shaped the people they've become. This week, the politician-turned-broadcaster Ed Balls talks candidly about his time in government, how he overcame the school bullies, and why he kept his lifelong stammer a secret. And I left thinking, I didn't know I was a coward. I thought I was not trying to put myself centre stage. I thought I was just trying to kind of not expose something about myself, but actually, I'm a coward. Past Imperfect, with Rachel Sylvester and Alice Thompson. Ed Balls, in his own words, now available as a podcast. Listen on the Times Radio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.